there was a camping shop near where I went to college and it had a big banner outside that said, um, this is the season of our discount tents. That's very clever. That's, I seem to remember seeing that joke in the Beano about 20 years ago, I'm sorry. Yeah, well, just, yeah, just you saying. want to bring some comedy, just James, saying. you're very welcome. Yeah, it's all right, it's all right. Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism. Episode 3 is called World Domination, where me and James Meadway are talking about how an idea changed the world. Good evening. I'm speaking to you tonight to give you a report on the state of our nation's economy. We will restore the freedom of all men and women to excel and to create. And we believe that everyone has the right to be unequal. But to us, every human being is equally important. We can create the incentives which take advantage of the genius of our economic system. I believe you won't keep political freedom unless you also have economic freedom. Thank you. In the last of our A Beginner's Guide to Neoliberalism episodes, we talked a bit about how neoliberalism, uh, by which we broadly mean individual choice, free enterprise, and really limited government except perhaps in creating markets, uh, we talked about how that came to prominence after being a pretty isolated economic theory. So, James, which was the first major economy to start adopting these policies? Well, you'd probably say it was the, the UK, really. The um, election of Margaret Thatcher in, in 1979 is you know, fairly obviously a, a decisive moment in this, although in practice, actually, the, the International Monetary Fund loan given to the Labour government in 1976 also attached to that are conditions that start to look a little bit like neoliberalism, you know, big cuts in government spending, that sort of thing. But it's Thatcher and her government that really starts to push the whole economy down lines that we today would recognise as, as neoliberal. And Thatcher herself is, is quite blunt about this. You know, it's extraordinarily blunt in a way politicians aren't now, saying things like, there is no such thing as society. Uh, and that even, even more than that, that, that the aim, uh, economics is just the method, the aim is to change people's souls, that this was a campaign to transform uh, the economy and society along the lines that she herself always believed in, which is, you know, the primacy of small businesses, of free markets, of thrift, of hard work and all the rest of it. That's the kind of rhetoric and the language attached here. The economic policies that are introduced are things like restrictions on trade union rights, changes uh, and restrictions on uh, collective bargaining and the rights of people to enjoy at work. And then steadily, of course, the increasing privatisation programme and the liberalisation, the deregulation of uh, capital markets and money markets. OK, so then Ronald Reagan, uh, Republican, gets in in the US, uh, elected on a slim, similar platform. Was that a coincidence or was that dance that I know that they had together Genuine really a conspiracy respect. dance? Prime Minister, the entire world salutes you and your gallant people and gallant nation. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you for your testament of belief. 
and God bless America. It's, it's somewhere in between. It's somewhere in between the two. I think uh, that the, what you've got here is is this kind of coincidence of a general global crisis of the earlier way of running capitalism. This is Keynesianism runs into a brick wall, really from the late sixties, early seventies onwards, and it's a it's a problem. Growth collapses, unemployment goes up. It's seen as a crisis. It's seen as a, a challenge to how capitalism operates, which is responded to over time with this kind of neoliberal method. So there's one part of it, which is that everywhere has this crisis. Everywhere has to develop a, a response to it. The fact that you had such similar sets of ideas in these two economies emerging, I think, it does point towards the really hard work that was put in beforehand by neoliberal thinkers in establishing the political frame that people would respond to the crisis with, that you could get fairly what seemed to be fairly simple, direct answers to the crisis in the economy. So you say things like unions have too much power, the government is in the way too much. I mean, it's kind of all very, very familiar now. But this is the rhetoric that's developed and starts to be applied in a kind of popular way, in a mass way, by the governments of Reagan and Thatcher from the early 80s onwards. OK, so do the kind of stuff that's happening in, in the UK and the US have, does that have an uh, influence on any of the parts of the world? It, it starts to feed into what everybody's doing. I mean, if you, if you look at uh, the response that lots and lots of different economies make from the late 70s into the early 80s and then into the into the 90s, you, you can see everywhere starts to adapt themselves to this kind of new neoliberal rules of the game. I mean, the, in many ways, one of the most dramatic examples is, is uh, Francois Mitterrand's government, uh, elected in 1981, uh, with the support of the Communist Party, with Communist Party ministers, on a programme of really quite radical Keynesianism, reflation, big expansion of the state, lots of government uh, support, lots of government intervention. Cette victoire est d'abord celle des forces de la jeunesse, des forces du travail, forces de création, forces du renouveau qui se sont rassemblées that runs into a, a, a very major uh, foreign exchange crisis uh, as, almost as soon as it, it arrives in office and responds to this um, by basically making a huge turn towards neoliberalism from 1983 onwards, ditches most of the programme, abandons the idea that this government can reflate the economy, can create demand, can boost wages, all those things, just abandons all that and takes a very, very clear turn towards neoliberalism. And this is a government supported by the Communist Party uh, in France with Mitterrand himself as as a notionally left-wing uh, president. So you can see how even governments that might have been opposed to this way of working start to get pushed and led in that kind of direction. OK, so you've mentioned workers' rights, deregulation, privatisation. Can you just give us a bit more detail about how uh, those neoliberal policies um, started to affect uh, people in the countries where they were adopted? Well, the, the big ones that come in here, apart from uh, the, the sort of restrictions which are dramatic in, in the US and UK on uh, trade union rights, the, the one that, that probably has the most influence or has the most influence over a long period of time is this process of a kind of deregulation or liberalisation of financial markets. So associated in Britain with the so-called Big Bang of, of 1986. So this is an enormous sort of de-restriction on certain ways that the City of London had of managing itself up until that point in time and the introduction of computerization and computerised trading. And this is, just creates the, the opportunity, the circumstances for finance capital, for people trading money and dealing in money to enormously expand what they're doing, which of course helps pave the way to the crisis of 2008, ultimately, that this is a kind of deregulation expansion of the financial system that, that occurs as a result, at least in part, of this commitment to neoliberalism as a set of policies. 
So what effect do these this kind of thinking have on international institutions, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, and how does this start to affect other parts of the world? Well, this is this is uh, the other sort of part, side to the story that moving out of the, the, the sort of de- the developed world and looking at what happens everywhere else, you see that in the early 1980s, you end up with the, the third world debt crisis, so-called, the large uh, number of developing uh, economies run into uh, enormous difficulties with the, the very, very large amounts of debts that they have. They're not able to repay these debts. Their economies, much like Greece today, are pushed further and further and deeper into economic crises. And the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, which has been converted to neoliberalism some years back, uh, uses this as an opportunity to force a kind of neoliberal way of running their economies on these different countries. These are the structural adjustment programmes. And that would mandate things like, you know, cut subsidies uh, for food, um, cut taxes on the wealthy and on capital, uh, de-restrict labour markets, uh, privatise anything that isn't obviously nailed down. This kind of familiar set of policies that get applied in sub-Saharan Africa, in Latin America particularly in response to the third world debt crisis. And this is neoliberalism globalising uh, at this point in time, with the International Monetary Fund as a leading agent for change there. OK, so you've, uh, if we go back to the UK and the US now, we've got Margaret Thatcher, we've got Ronald Reagan, Conservatives and Republicans alike have wholeheartedly got behind this kind of thinking. What did the other political parties do? Well, this is the, the interesting bit, that once, um, particularly in the, in the UK and the US, of course, that once you have this sort of neoliberalism embeds itself, once it becomes the accepted rules of the game in those economies, you find that parties historically of the left, historically attached to the earlier Keynesian way of running things, that the welfare state is here, is in Britain, is is very much associated with, with the 1945 Labour government. That they kind of turn away from that and concede an awful lot of the ground to uh, neoliberal thinking. And this is the, the creation of new Labour here. This is quite deliberately, uh, you know, Peter Mandelson, a key architect of new Labour, saying things like that we're intensely relaxed about people becoming uh, very wealthy indeed. This is a huge turn away from what you might think of Labour's historic values. So Peter Mandelson, I mean, you in the past have been... You've said terribly relaxed about people becoming, I think your expression was filthy rich. Are you still as relaxed about that? As long as they pay their taxes, and what I would add now is showing proper responsibility, both to the companies that they manage, but also to the society and the communities uh, around them. That's what's shifted so in the they, public's demand. if they do that, the gap doesn't matter? No, I think that what is important... It doesn't. What I think is important... He says it does. What I and think that's the point at which, and, and Thatcher says this herself, that's the point at which the neoliberals have won. Thatcher regarded the creation of new Labour as one of her greatest single triumphs because it meant that the Labour Party had conceded the point to Margaret Thatcher and, and people who thought like her, people who are neoliberals, that they'd agree on the need for privatisation, on the limited role of government uh, and on um, the, the need for free markets wherever they can be found. They just kind of nuance it and try and make it look a bit nicer. It was kind of happy face neoliberalism, I suppose, you get with. New Labour here and the New Democrats under Bill Clinton in the US. Okay, and so do all countries run on the basis of neoliberal economics now? Well, this is where things have moved on a bit, I think, that after the triumph of neoliberalism, which occurs really in the 1990s for the Berlin Wall, the acceptance of these rules of the game absolutely everywhere, you run, I think, into two sets of crises. One of them is the East Asian uh, crisis, 1997-1998, in which the IMF completely trashes its reputation, very obviously tries to intervene in what's a sort of 
um, kind of foreign exchange crisis and very obviously its intervention makes the situation worse and it loses an immense amount of authority. And the response in East Asia is to start to turn away from the prescriptions of the International Monetary Fund and start to pursue a more sort of independent-minded path. The other one is the crisis that you get and the problems that the IMF and neoliberalism runs into in Latin America, particularly with the, the um, Argentinian debt default in 2000, 2001, the enormous economic crisis that breaks out there. You get a turn in South America away from uh, neoliberal prescriptions and the creation of governments on the left, so Ecuador, Venezuela, uh, Bolivia, places like this, make a decisive turn against neoliberalism. So the situation at the minute is much more mixed than it would have been, say, 15, 20 years ago, that it is not necessarily the case that neoliberalism are the only game in town or the only rules of the game in town. There are, in fact, other alternatives starting to emerge. OK, well, this is not the end of the story, James, but it's uh, the end of the episode, so we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you very much um, for fitting so much history into such a short space of time. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, an independent think tank and charity that campaigns for a fairer, sustainable economy. Find out more and get involved at neoeconomics.org.